This program is brought to you by PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. To learn more about this podcast, visit pli.edu slash pro bono podcast. It, it prompted me to say, well, okay, if not that, I'm going to allow myself to make that decision. You're not going to do literally the thing you went to law school to do that you developed a specialty in. You're going to say you won't do it. Then what else? Because you got to do something. Nothing is not an option. You feeling guilty and ashamed that you haven't done something or you didn't like something you did, it doesn't help the client. It doesn't help your community. It doesn't help you. It, it doesn't help your colleagues. And we all know this, but we still feel it because we're human. So, you know, feel it and then move on and take some action to redirect your course. Um, and, and I do think this is something that lawyers are uniquely skilled at doing because we get trained to analyze things, to sift out, to make sense of facts, to develop theories, which absolutely, as attorneys, are trained in the necessary skills. I just don't think that as a community, as a profession, we've spent enough time saying those skills, use those skills to figure out what your contribution is going to be as a pro bono lawyer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special episode of Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files. Usually, the voice you'd be hearing right now is that of our host, Alicia Aiken. But in this episode, we're doing something a little different. My name is Daniel Pinitz, and I'm a producer here at PLI. And today, we've turned the tables on Alicia, who also goes by Lish, in case you hear me refer to her by that name. Alicia has a fairly unique combination of pro bono experiences And so we thought it would be great for her to share some of her stories and insights with our listeners in a special two-part episode. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Alicia Aiken. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for thinking it was a good idea. I think this is a great idea. I think it's going to be great. We're interviewing our host, Alicia Aiken, about the journey to finding your pro bono niche and how that is different from doing public interest and nonprofit work. Do you want to just start at the beginning then? Do you want to talk about your experiences in law school, maybe why you went to law school, and um, then go from there? Sure. I was supposed to have my 25th law school reunion this year, and so it really prompted a lot of reflection. And... When I think about pro bono and my relationship to pro bono, I think there's really three fairly distinct phases. Um, You know, one is when I was a brand new, young, social justice, do-gooder lawyer who didn't have a whole lot of time or energy for people who were not doing the work full time. Like, I was like, if you believe in it, you do it full time. And if you get a big paycheck, you must not believe it. Uh, and and then I grew up. <laughs> and phase two would be um, when I was a leader in my organization and I was really thinking about how do we maximize the talents and the resources of private lawyers who want to contribute to the mission. How do we maximize that to create great outcomes for clients and to improve our community? And then phase three was when I left nonprofit law and became a consultant and I needed to be a pro bono lawyer myself. And and that has been an experience of um, fits and starts 
and some frustrating experiences. And then only in some ways because of the pandemic have I gotten locked into something that feels like very much the right long-term pro bono fit for me. Um, I went to law school knowing that I was going to do social justice. I would say I didn't love law school, but representing clients and going to court immediately hooked me. Like I, I knew that's what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be very quickly. But I, I do think law school's a it's a kind of a hard, weird place. There's a lot of messages about what you should do or shouldn't do, and it is a it is a real struggle to figure out how to balance who you are, what you believe, what will make you feel rewarded as a professional, how to pay the bills, you know, and 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 how to respect yourself. Like that's just a really difficult difficult balance to figure out. Adulting is complicated. Yeah. I'm I'm glad that I've grown and matured because it's it's just not that simple. So I worked for this law school clinic all the way through law school, which was very satisfying. And I got in tremendous training. But what I didn't get was a lead for a job after law school. So I made this big decision. I was going to I needed a legal aid job. I wanted to represent clients. I wanted to be in court. I wanted to be active. Uh, and I just decided and I wanted to be in a big city. So I decided I'd move to New York, Chicago or Seattle. So I had close friends in each place. And I had a job offer in New York City doing some really small legal aid program doing um, eviction defense work. And my office would have been in a church. It was a decommissioned church. And my and my office would have been like the altar. <laughs> and I seriously considered moving to New York. But I decided through a careful review of the free newspapers that, you know, the when we used to have free arts newspapers. In New York and in Chicago, I decided that it was easier to be broke in Chicago than broke in New York. Legal Aid Chicago had a student job, and the student job was working on a um, an issue for prisoners. And then they had a second student job, which was helping divorce lawyers um, do divorce cases. And I applied. And they said, you're not a student. And I said, well, I'm not licensed in Illinois yet. I still have to take that bar exam. And I'm young <laughs> and I'm willing to accept what you're offering for, you know, a, an hourly rate. And I just want to get my foot in the door. Uh, and so a position to open up doing uh, an AmeriCorps attorney job. It's AmeriCorps VISTA. It's the Volunteers in Service to America program is essentially like the domestic Peace Corps. And this is a national program, still exists now. You do work, but you are paid a very low salary. You're supposed to be doing work that addresses poverty, but they intentionally pay you poverty wages, they say, so that you can understand what people are dealing with. If you do it and you stick with it, you get money for college loans, tuition, loan repayment. So I managed within a couple of months to get that position for $15,000. And I loved it. I just loved everything about it. And then within six months, I was offered a regular unionized staff attorney job. And I remember the executive director stopping by my office and saying, I rarely get to say this to anyone, but I'm about to double your salary. <laughs> that must have felt good. It was fantastic. I, I, I was like, I got it made. Like, this is all I ever wanted. I, I, you know, I will be at this agency in this city until the end of time, I thought. 
didn't right. turn out that way by any stretch. But yeah, it was like I had found I had found my niche. So it was this question of, you know, I knew I wanted to do public interest, but what was my niche? Like, what did I want my day to day to look like? Where did I want my focus to be? What did I want my colleagues to be like? And it took some false starts to get there. And then I was there for 15 years. Over that 15 years, Alicia developed an expertise in multiple areas of poverty law. In legal aid, lawyers are navigating a web of statutes and regulations, underfunded bureaucracies, and specialized courtrooms that can be pretty foreign to anyone who is not dealing with issues of poverty and violence on a regular basis. So I would say when I started, as much as I say I was prepared to not make a lot of money and I was prepared to, you know, to always be um, squeezing pennies in order to do the work that I wanted to do, and I loved the work, my original feelings about pro bono when I started practicing, to be completely honest, was to resent highly paid firm lawyers who wanted to do pro bono. Because I was like, this is a specialty. Um, it's hard. And I'm making financial sacrifices to do this work. And it would make me angry. I mean, I'm being really honest. Like, it would make me angry that people who were being paid, you know, literally four times as much as I was, who had been out of law school the exact same amount of time, would say, I feel like doing a case. You know, put me in, coach. I can do a protective order. And I, I just was like, no, actually, you can't. You don't know what you're doing. It's hard. You, I don't want you to screw this up. People living in poverty are not guinea pigs. And how dare you take away from me the one thing I've got, which is that I do this specialized thing that makes me special. And you get the high pay and credit for doing the thing? No. <laughs> I mean, again, I've matured. I have a more nuanced view of it. Um, I still have concerns about pro bono programs that run the risk of turning people living in poverty into guinea pigs. And so that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast is to talk about well-run pro bono um, projects that provide people the training that are well-designed so that people can do a good job because no pro bono wants to come in and do a bad job. That would be the worst outcome from them. Nobody wants that. Um, but I'm just being really honest that my attitude when I was a new lawyer in legal aid was like, just make a donation. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to talk about that feeling generally between the legal aid world and big firms doing pro bono? Is that something that is sort of a bigger thing between the two? I, I think, well, I think it's changed a lot in 25 years. And I think the relationships and the attitudes between professional nonprofit and pro bono lawyers has changed drastically. Uh, some of that has to do with the law firms taking pro bono much more seriously. Uh, there was a time when I think a lot of law firms did it so they could say they did it. And now they invest real resources into doing it really well. And so I think from the legal aid perspective, if your concern is you want people living in poverty to get great legal help, when you see law firms investing in giving people great legal help, you're like, okay, that's the goal. 
Like if you're meeting the goal, then we're we're all good. So I think that that relationship has changed a lot in the last 25 years. I mean, it used to be almost no law firm had a pro bono counsel. And, and now, you know, all I think all of the AMLAW 200 firms have a highly regarded, often partner, whose job is to lead pro bono efforts. It feels very serious. I mean, you have law firms like Denton's you know, using their resources to run ads all through Latin America to try to locate parents who were separated from their children so that then they can provide them with resources to get reconnected with their children. And they mean it. Like, they feel very seriously and very intensely about this issue. I I think I've been really impressed with the work that firms have done and the resources that they've invested. And I felt that change as both, both as I grew up and I thought about there aren't enough lawyers who are doing this full time. There's not enough money to pay enough lawyers who are doing this full time. So we've got to have more resources. If this is a way to get more resources, it's worth it. And instead of sitting back and crossing my arms and saying, I don't think you know how to do this well, I should sit up and get involved and help people do it well. And so eventually at Legal Aid Chicago, I became the director of training uh, client support services and pro bono. So I kind of like had three divisions that I was overseeing. And, you know, that really forced me to be like, okay, what does it look like to, as the legal aid institution to support law firms to do the pro bono well? What do you actually mechanically, logistically need to do so that it works and it's successful. At the time when they asked me to be director of training and pro bono, I thought there was no connection. And I was a little bit like, okay, I'm just picking up pieces here. But it turned out that it was a very smart connection because so much of what makes a pro bono project successful is the kind of like planning and attention to the needs of the person the folks that you're working with, it's the same as good training, right? Like, what do people need? What's the best way to give it to them? How do I plan it in a way that makes it as seamless and frictionless as possible for them to get what they need? That's what it is to to be a director of training and design good training. And, and that's what it was to be a director of pro bono. I was very lucky that um, we had a staff attorney whose full-time job was actually doing the pro bono projects. And I was essentially there to support her. Uh, and and it, it mattered a lot, I think, that we would sit down and we would have strategic conversations like in this year, what do we think we want to do that it makes sense? Well, like literally our very first year was we weren't really doing anything that uh, to formally appreciate the volunteers. And that was a little bit of a vestige of the old attitude of like, you know, you should just consider yourself lucky to get to contribute to justice. Uh, and <laughs> we, we recognize that, you know, when people volunteer their time, they like to be thanked. And that is reasonable. <laughs> and so we started spending more energy thanking people. And we started paying much closer attention to who were the pro bono lawyers that we were working with. Uh, so because of the work of the staff attorney, Mara Block, uh, who really was taking things seriously, every time somebody said, I want to volunteer with you, we would say, thank you. 
tell me more about yourself. And then she would check their bar license. And we really paid attention and cared. And we're thinking about how do we structure a program that's actually good for everyone? What does it need to do to be good for the clients, good for the pro bono lawyer, and good for the nonprofit lawyers that are partnering? I had some phenomenal experiences with pro bono co-counsel. I had a case, a divorce case. It was a custody trial um, that we actually thought was going to be very straightforward, but we had to have a trial. And so we invited Kirkland and Ellis um, to um, work on it pro bono. We had two lawyers who um, volunteered, two associates, and they were being overseen by a partner, but it was really the associates who volunteered to do this case. And I set myself up. I was like, I'll be your mentor. We're going to do a trial, but you're going to do the trial and I will mentor you to do it well in the same way that I would mentor, you know, a new legal aid lawyer. And then the case got very hard unexpectedly because one of the children was assaulted by someone outside of the family, but it changed the entire character of the case. It changed, it created a crisis and urgency and it changed what the work was going to involve. It was much more traumatic to work on and think about for everyone involved. And I just cannot say enough good things about Kirkland and Ellis and the way that they stepped up and stayed involved. And not only did they, you know, did I suddenly have access to two you know, really great lawyers. One of the lawyers was fully bilingual and my client was a Spanish speaker and I was not. So one of the lawyers on the case could communicate with the client in a way I couldn't which was a big moment for me to get off my high horse and be like, I'm the legal aid lawyer who has not succeeded in learning the language of my clients. But this attorney who had gone into international law was fully fluent in Spanish and could communicate with the client. And so it was better representation for the client because I brought in this resource. And then Kirkland and Ellis paid for the interpreters in court, where normally we would be relying on court interpreters and it was slow and it wasn't as high quality. Kirkland and Ellis was hiring their high profile interpretation firm to send two interpreters to court, one for the abusive ex-husband and one for our client, so that the client wouldn't have to stand close to her ex while sharing an interpreter. It was just this whole world of of what's possible when you actually have resources opened up to me and to my client. And they were fabulous co-counsel. Just everything about it was like just possibly the most positive co-counseling experience I've ever had with anyone. And so that was a big moment for me to be like, you know what, when you describe a case accurately, when you support people well, then it works. (laughs) It can be a great experience. Was that sort of a watershed moment in your career? It sounds like that was a pivotal moment. I would say it was because I think intellectually I had wrapped my head around the idea that partnering with the with firms was a good thing but that was that experience was when I emotionally wrapped my heart around it uh, and I was like this is this is it this is a big deal and around the same time I had a second experience where we had a pro bono relationship with a financial services forensic accounting firm and they wanted to get involved in pro bono they did a lot of work with big cases for, you know, where corporations were suing each other, but they wanted to do pro bono work. And so I had a different case where it was was a fairly complicated child support case that, frankly, at the legal aid level, most of the time, 
you would have just sort of said, well, we'll get you whatever we can get you, whatever your ex admits to having. And then there's not really anything else we could do. And instead, because I had this pro bono forensic accountant pouring over the ex's tax records and telling me all the places where there were either cheats in the tax record or things that, while it might have been allowed in taxes, actually under the law could be contributed to child support. Uh, and and that guy stuck by my side for like six months, just being an in-the-background consultant. Uh, and in that case, we got the client so much money in child support that she became ineligible for legal aid. She was literally no longer considered to be in poverty. No way would I have been able to do that on my own. I mean, I did all the legal work and I did the briefing and the arguing and I persuaded the judge, but I would never have had the facts if it hadn't been for that pro bono accountant relationship. So those two things happened pretty close in time to each other. And I think that was when I really said, you know, I'm just being arrogant and stupid if I am not trying to maximize these resources for the clients that I say I care about so much. Can you just do a quick distinction for people who might not know that the differences between legal aid and doing pro bono work? Yes. My favorite distinction to obsess about. (laughs) There's your chance then. Obsess away. So legal aid is a generic term for nonprofit organizations that generally have full-time attorneys on salary who represent clients without charging the clients any fee. And which clients they represent is a formula of um, experiencing poverty, experiencing trauma, being part of a particular population like veterans um, or seniors, and needing legal help. Pro bono is being a lawyer who could be doing anything. You could be working at a large firm. You could be a sole practitioner. You could be working in government. You could be being a consultant like I am. You could be um, not working anywhere for whatever reason. Maybe you're um, parenting young children um, or you're just taking a break and you volunteer your time to represent a client for no pay. Um, and I just think it's an, an important distinction because I and this does this is just a little piece of twenty three year old me coming back here. Um, you know, it it is a specialty. Doing poverty law is a specialty. Doing anti violence law is a specialty. In the way that doing um, international law or public defense um, are specialties, and um, there are a few people who have developed a pro bono specialty, but it's relatively rare. And so. I just think it's important that we name those distinctions, especially when people are thinking about who do they want to be as a lawyer. We want to make sure that people have an opportunity to think about, well, would I want to do this full time, all day, every day? Or would I want to do something else as my full time, but then there's a percentage of my time I want to spend doing this thing? I think we want to name that because they are... They're different from each other. And when we can see how they're different, then we can plan for how to um, help them work together well. Does it ever come up that people conflate the two terms and does it cause issues? Or is it just more of a, of a mislabeling kind of a thing? Uh, that's an interesting question. I think, well, I think if you conflate the two terms, 
then especially if you're in the field of like training and support and funding, you can lose track of what the professional nonprofit legal aid community needs to do their work well. Because they do actually need different things from what pro bono volunteer doing this some of the time lawyers need. So yeah, so if you conflate the terms and we just talk about our national pro bono efforts, I think you're really going to lose track of what is needed to have a successful legal aid system, um, which we should have. I mean, it's sort of, it's an issue of justice and access for us to have one. And it will never be something you can achieve solely through pro bono. You you have to have the consistency. You have to have experts. You, you have to have sort of presence in a community. You have to have people who are like, I go to the community meetings because I don't know what people need unless I go and listen to them. And then I can think about what could a lawyer do to help with that problem. It's not really a pro bono role. It's you need those professionals and those experts to have this be their bread and butter all the time so that they can then devise what's a good strategy to try to address the problem and how do we bring pro bono volunteer lawyers into addressing the problem. While at Legal Aid, Alicia had some great outcomes, which grew out of solid partnerships. Lish was able to bring her accumulated knowledge about the law, trial practice, and the quirks of those courts, and the pro bonos brought their talent, commitment, and organizational resources. But some cases required a lot of time and energy from the volunteers. What happens when the expectations of a pro bono are unrealistic, or a lawyer isn't adequately prepared for what doing a case will involve? Do you think that pro bono lawyers or lawyers who do pro bono sometimes don't know what they're getting themselves into? I mean, I think the answer is it's probably all over the map. When we talk about legal aid, we're talking about, you know, there is a legal aid office in um, at least representing every county in the nation. And um, and then there are um, lots and lots of independent nonprofits doing legal aid. So. We can never fully characterize, you know, what they're doing. But I I think that it depends. And frankly, if you had had me when I first joined Legal Aid, when I was like, I resent you for making so much money and thinking you can tread on my turf, which is what I thought. Um, if you had had me co-counsel that case, I don't think it would have... I don't think it would have gone so well because I don't think I would have developed that relationship. I mean, that is the thing about co-counseling cases that's really tricky is it is a partnership. And if it's a partnership with somebody who doesn't work in the same organization as you work in and you don't already know them, you have to build that relationship from scratch and you have to put energy into building it. So historically... Um, I would say a lot of times legal aid would say, well, we'll we'll do pro bono by just offering to co-counsel cases without really thinking about how hard it is to co-counsel cases, like how much relationship management is required and maybe not supporting the legal aid lawyers who might have anywhere from 40 to 100 cases that they're handling at once. 
not supporting the legal aid lawyer to take the time to do the relationship management to make the co-counsel relationship successful. So I do think there is, again, the, the whole field has matured around this issue. And I definitely think there's more attention paid to that co-counsel relationship. But there's still plenty of times where you know, the lawyer just doesn't really put that much energy in. And and there might be a jumping to conclusion of, well, they just weren't serious about pro bono or they're not a good lawyer or they're not a good fit. And sometimes I wonder if the answer isn't they felt like they had been thrown in the deep end. They felt like they didn't have the support. They felt like they might be doing it wrong. And so they just decided to walk away and let the experts in, in nonprofit handle it. And, and we'll never completely know which it is. It's interesting, right. like when we talked to Her Justice, they talked about their model being one where they do not co-counsel cases. Right, right. I remember that. Because of how difficult this relationship is, I, I think, that they want the law firm to take on the case and say, this is ours. This is our reputation. They're, the buck stops with us. We can't walk away and know that this person is still taken care of. We have to invest and do it. And then her justice is available for mentoring. Um, and I think there's a lot that's very wise about that, that it is easier to build a mentoring relationship than it is to build a co-counseling relationship. Yeah, that makes sense because, you know, just from a lot of the interviews that we've, we've done for the podcast, I know that it has come up a lot that, you know, lawyers, it's a, they don't like to lose, right? <laughs> I mean, most people in general don't like to feel like they're, they're wrong or they don't know how to do something. But, you know, especially in the legal profession, it's probably, I can imagine, easier psychologically to just walk away from something than to, you know, than to lose. Maybe you lost because you weren't prepared or you didn't have the correct support. But to them, it's just like, look, I have other billable work that I could, that I could be doing. <laughs> Well, and it's that thing about once you're good at something, why would you spend your time doing something you're not good at? <laughs> and we have had... For free. For, for free. free. Right. You know, we have people who have said to us off the record in these interviews, it's very hard to get partners to do cases because the partners, they are busy, but also they're at the top of their game. And so why would you sign up to voluntarily be at the bottom of your game and and I experienced this just as a legal aid lawyer. Like one of the things I hate the most is having to take a case that's in a new courthouse. Because when I go to the Daily Center in downtown Chicago, I know the drill. I know the building. I know the atmosphere. I know what the secret copy machine is. I know it takes dimes. Um, <laughs> and the judges know me. And whether they like me or they like my client, they, they at least know me. But you go to a brand new courthouse and you don't know what any of the secret rules are. And there always are. And so it's this, I get really anxious and stressed out. And my husband will say to me, it's, you're just checking in with the judge. I'm like, I know, but I don't know the clerk and I don't know the building and I don't know the parking and I don't know the judge. <laughs> so take that and make it even bigger that, you know, you are somebody who's always practiced in federal court, but a lot of legal aid happens in state court and not the fancy state courts. <laughs> and... 
and you don't know the topic area and you don't have training in doing really good trauma-informed interviews with people who have experienced horrible things in their lives. And, you know, I, already the list is like enough to have people be like, I'll write a check. <laughs> right. Yep. Yeah. Um just let me write a check. And so I, I do, I, I would like to get over that hump. I would like to help partners feel like they can get more involved in pro bono and it's worth it to take the risk of that feeling in the pit of your stomach of not knowing what you're doing. I often say that the difference between new lawyers and experienced lawyers is that new lawyers don't know how they're committing malpractice and experienced lawyers know exactly how they're committing malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> Because you can see, you're like, I don't know this well enough to be here opening my mouth. I'm scared. So it's why we've done episodes about doing pro bono that is in your expertise. So you don't have to take that risk feeling. And it's um, in an upcoming episode, I've already in a pre-interview with attorney had him say, you know, someone asked me to get involved in this case. And I said, wow, that looks inconvenient and hard and really complicated but man is this important i gotta do it and and i like the fact that both he did that but he also walked in eyes wide open right oh. right i mean i think that's part of it too is is having a full comprehension of all of the difficulties involved in doing something like that mm -hmm. like like you said if somebody is there to sort of outline look even going to the court, you're going to be in a different environment that you're not used to. Everything's going to look different. It's going to feel different. It's going to smell different. Everything is going to be different. But here, you know, we'll walk you through it. We'll give you the resources. And also focusing on the maybe the soft skills of the situation, mm -hmm. like, like you said before about relationship management, because those are huge things that can deter somebody is when things like that aren't, aren't sort of clicking and working in the right way. I mean, Forget about the whole not knowing that area of law. I mean, these are other things that could totally detract somebody from doing pro bono work, I would imagine. Absolutely. Which I learned when I left legal aid and I became a, a private consultant, but I still wanted to do pro bono. And I tried doing some pro bono and I learned from the other end of things. That transition from a facilitator of pro bono opportunities to a lawyer who needed to do pro bono turned out to be more complicated than Lish ever imagined. The little things turned out to make a big difference. I learned how much relationship management matters when you're in either private practice or, or you know, outside of nonprofit and you want to volunteer and do some work. Man, those little things matter so much. Or, and they're not even little things. It's... How do you communicate with me? How does the, the nonprofit decide what's a good case to offer to a pro bono? You know, how do I have access to the right forms or administrative assistance to do really simple things like uh, send mail? You know, I had an experience recently where the most stressful thing about a case was, was I going to get the certified mail out correctly? Which is really ridiculous because I was a legal aid lawyer for 15 years. And in legal aid, you don't have an assistant. You do your own certified mail. But I had an office with a postal scale and the green cards and 
you know, all the right things. And five other people who were also doing certified mail who, if I got confused about what the rate was, could remind me. So then fast forward and I'm doing an unemployment case and I'm terrified about whether I'm going to get the certified because if I don't get the certified mail out right, the client just loses and it's 100 percent my fault. So I, I'm literally like sweating bullets about this. Kid you not. And my and my husband says they don't have an assistant at the nonprofit. And I was like, oh, I don't. Is that fair to ask? And he's like, aren't you doing a free case for them? <laughs> oh, good point. And, and that's a little bit of a legal aid mentality, like assume you can't get the resources you need. So I asked and they said, yeah, of course, we have an office manager. She does that all the time. She has all the right forms in the postal scale and she'll do that for you. No problem. I was like, OK, great. Which, you know, when we're a lot of times when we're talking about pro bono, we're talking about you could change people's lives. You could change the, you know, the the state of law in our nation. We don't say, also, someone will send out the certified mail. It's the little things, but I think, a lot of times. I actually think we should say that more often because it makes it feel easier to take on this new thing for free that you're already trying to carve out space for. You know, it, it, it matters. This has been part one of our two-part conversation with Alicia Aiken. In the second part of our conversation, Liz shares her experience of struggling to find the right fit as a pro bono volunteer and how the changes triggered by the pandemic clarified her path forward. Thanks for listening to Pursuing Justice, The Pro Bono Files, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. This production is dedicated to the pro bono and public interest lawyers working to improve access to justice. A special thanks goes to our host, Alicia Aiken. Please note that the views and opinions expressed during this podcast represent those of the individuals being interviewed and not necessarily those of PLI. PLI is a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys and other professionals at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. For more information about PLI's wide-ranging curriculum of pro bono programs, visit pli.edu/probono.